wanted. It tells us, Lord, that you went up on the mountain, you prayed all night, and then you summoned these men that you wanted, and you called them to be with you, and you would anoint them to preach for you, and you would empower them to have authority over demons, and you've done the same for us. God, you have called us, who are to be your disciples, to be with you. You have blessed us with the honor of preaching your name. You have empowered us with the authority over the evil one in this world. And I simply pray that you would continue to instruct our church about what that means, about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You would continue to pour out your spirit upon this congregation. You would continue to refine us and redefine us as those who are anointed and called to be your servants, your ambassadors, your representatives, heirs of the world together with you, co-laborers with you, Christ Jesus, your disciples, ones who are sent in your name. Bless this morning as we look into your word, as we talk about Philip, chasten and refine and encourage and build us up for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Some months back, I was ordained at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara as a pastor by Pastor Ricky Ryan. And there was another pastor there at the time, and his name is Pastor Jack Hibbs, and he's the uh, pastor at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills, where God has been doing an amazing work. And he is one of my spiritual mentors, one of my best friends. He is my son's godfather, he and his wife, my son's godparents, and just precious to us. And he's really meant a lot in my life. And so he was there that day. He left his own congregation to come and be a part of my ordination. What an honor that was for me. And, you know, I I expected him to say some cool things at the ordination. And all he said was this, really. He said to the congregation there that morning at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, Friends, there are some people that are so messed up that God has to keep a closer eye on them. And so he makes them pastors. And so we ordain Brit to the ministry today. If you know many pastors, you know that is absolutely true. And Philip was one of these guys. Because as we will see, Philip, though he had faith, had weak faith. But beyond having a weak faith, most importantly, Philip had a great God. The book of Titus calls Jesus our great God and Savior. And we're told there in John chapter 1 that this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, went purposely to Galilee, and there he was looking for Philip. Purposely and specifically sought Philip out. Now we know that the Lord sought out all 12 of the disciples. It says in John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose and called you. And so he really sought out all the disciples, but concerning Philip here, the language is unique in the way that God called him. He is the only disciple that it says Jesus actually went looking for, went to a region to seek him out. And Philip is the first man who Jesus said, follow me to. And we see that from that time on, Philip began to follow him. Philip is not mentioned that many times in the New Testament 
other than the lists of the disciples where they are all mentioned, Philip is only mentioned three times. In all the New Testament, compare that to Andrew, who is mentioned nine times besides the list of the twelve disciples that we spoke about last week. And in his three appearances he makes in the New Testament, all of them are in the book of John, and all of them are quite embarrassing to Philip. We see Philip in the first one in John chapter 6 displaying weak faith toward Jesus. We see Philip in John chapter 12 doing the weak thing concerning Jesus. And we see Philip in John chapter 14 not understanding the right things about Jesus. And so just a snapshot of Phil, Phil, he had weak faith. He did the weak thing when given an opportunity and he didn't understand the right things. And yet this is the one man whom it says Jesus went specifically to Galilee to seek him out and to find him. That is a picture, not so much of Philip as it is of God and his character and really how God is toward each one of us. It is God who seeks after you and I. It is God who arranges circumstances in your life to draw you unto Him. He draws us by His loving kindness. The Bible says that Jesus stands at your heart's door and knock, that God is seeking after each one of us. And when we get born again, we often say, oh, I found the Lord, but really, He found us. You know. And there's some of you here this morning that God is after you, and that's why you're here. You just know that He's been stirring in your life. You just know that there's something going on, and that's why you're here this morning. Because just as he went to Galilee to find Philip, he is here today to find you, that you might be found by him. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we look at one of my life verses verse that ministers to me and encourages me every day in my walk with Jesus Christ. Illustrates what God was doing and calling and in choosing Philip. Illustrates the character of God. We've read it many times, but let's read it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble. Paul's simply saying here to the church in Corinth and to you and I, think about yourselves when God called you and God found you. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are mighty. Not many of you are noble. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised things of the world, God has chosen that the things that are, and the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, in order that no man should be able to boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God because we had none of our own, who became to us righteousness because we had none of our own, and sanctification because we were not, and redemption because we needed to be, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
God has chosen the losers of the world that He might be glorified and none of His followers would have anything to boast about. If you ever hear a Christian or a Christian leader boasting about how wonderful they are and how useful they are in the kingdom of God, step away because they're about to fall. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world that he might show himself strong. When I first studied the book of 1 Corinthians, I read that, and I wrote in the margin of my Bible, I hope you have a Bible that you can write in and make personal notes, I wrote in the margin of my Bible, God calls nobodies. And I made a quick little list from memory there. I wrote down Abraham, Moses, Gideon, David, the nation of Israel, and Brit. God calls nobodies. Abraham, when God called him, was just a pagan, an idolater, there in in Ur of the Chaldees. And there is no rhyme, no reason, no sense whatsoever why God called Abraham, other than because of his mercy and his grace, and because he figured, well, this guy is just bad enough that I could glorify myself through him. He was just a pagan there. And God had mercy upon him, called him, established the Abrahamic covenant with him, said, I will make of you a great nation and great nations, and the nations of the world will be blessed through you. God did an amazing thing with just a nobody. Abraham is greatly revered in Judaism and in Christianity, and he is often spoke of as righteous Abraham, but Abraham had no righteousness of his own. He believed in God, Genesis 15, 6 tells us, and so God reckoned it to him as righteousness. No righteousness of his own, no merit of his own, nothing great in him. In fact, if you study the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham, you will see almost without exception that he generally disobeyed God, and when he did obey, he only partially obeyed. God chose Abraham. God chose Moses. Moses, Moses, that baby that was sent down the river, raised up in Pharaoh's house. Moses became somebody in Pharaoh's house, you know. He was a great leader in Egypt, but in order for God to use him, God had to make him a nobody. And so God took him out of Pharaoh's house, out of leadership, out of Egypt, and into the wilderness where he was a humble shepherd for 40 years. 40 years wandering around, caring for the flocks, caring for the sheep, learning what it would be like unknowingly to him when he would lead God's people out of Egypt. And by the time God once again called him 40 years later, Moses was a broken man. Moses said, no, God, I I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. I can't do this. Don't call me. Moses was a somebody. God had to make him a nobody before he could use him. Amen. Gideon, you know the story of Gideon, read it. David, 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 he was the youngest of the brothers, the smallest of the brothers. When Samuel came to anoint the future king of Israel, he looked at all the sons, all of David's brothers, and he said, uh, there's got to be one more. And the father goes, ah, there's this little kid, David, but he's out working in the fields. I mean, not David. And God chose David. God chose David for mighty battles. It was David who defeated Goliath. Goliath would come out into the battlefield day after day and say, Who in Israel will fight me? Who will fight me? And all Israel would say, Oh, not us. We're afraid. And David, this little tiny guy who King Saul's armor was too big for him, he said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he taunts the armies of the living God? And David went out there and opened up a can on Goliath and killed him. 
In Israel, God didn't choose Israel and place his name in Israel and make promises to Israel because they were great. They were the least of nations, an obstinate people. And through them, God would glorify himself by proving himself faithful. And so on and so forth down the list to me and to you. God has chosen the weak things of the world that he might show himself faithful and himself wonderful. And though it is clear that Philip had a weak faith, he is still fourth in all the lists of the disciples. Scholars and Bible students agree that when all the disciples are listed together, it is in descending order of their leadership. Peter always being the first and Judas the traitor always being the last. And Philip always being somewhere around just a little above mid-pack, fourth place. Though he had weak faith, he was fourth among the disciples. And church tradition tells us that Philip was greatly used in the spread of the gospel in the early church. He was martyred in Asia Minor. He was stoned to death. Eight years after James, the first apostle to be martyred, was a martyred. But before his death, we are told concerning Philip that he led multitudes to the Lord, that he did a great work for the kingdom of God. And again, that is a picture not so much of the man Philip, up, but of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Had we been in charge of choosing the 12 disciples, <laughs> it would have been a much very different list. It would have looked very different altogether had we been in charge of it. We would have looked at Philip and we would have said, oh, no way, man. Philip, you're out of here. You got to go. You can't be one of the most important 12 men in all of history. Philip, you'll never make it. Aren't you glad that we don't choose the leaders in God's kingdom? That God sovereignly chooses his leaders in his wisdom? God knows. Aren't you glad that God is God and you're not God and I'm not God? Amen. Though we would have kicked him off the list, Jesus looked at him and said, this is just what I'm looking for. This guy I can make into a preacher. This guy I can make into an apostle. I will make him one of the founders of my church, a ruler in the kingdom. I will give him eternal reward in heaven. I will write his name on the twelve gates of the new Jerusalem. God takes the nothings and does amazing things. Are you nothing this morning? Be encouraged. You think you're something this morning? Be afraid. God is seeking to humble you, that he can bless you and use you. Now we'll look at three quick vignettes of the life of Philip, all of them found in the book of John. Matthew said nothing about him other than to list him. Mark said nothing about him other than to list him. Luke didn't care about him whatsoever, but John talks about him a little bit. Turn to John chapter 6 as we see the first vignette to Philip's life. John chapter 6, we have here, starting in verse 1, this wonderful story of the feeding of the 5,000 that so many of us are familiar with. Jesus on this day had sought to get away with his disciples. We're told in the book of Mark concerning this event that the people were so pressing in around Jesus and his disciples that they couldn't even eat. 
the demands upon them and the wants and the needs of the people were so great that they couldn't even eat together, the disciples and the Lord anymore. And the Lord said, boy, my boys need a rest. And so get in the boat and let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're told that as they got in the boat to go to the other side to be alone with Jesus, that all these 5,000 men plus women and children ran around the Sea of Galilee and beat them to the other side. And when they got there, there was a multitude. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew that it was getting late and so no doubt the people were getting hungry verse 1 after these things Jesus went away to the other side of the sea of Galilee as we were just speaking of and a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick and Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples now the Passover the feast of the Jews was at hand Jesus therefore listen now Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude, we said 5,000 men. I'm sorry, women, the Bible just numbers the men there. But the women were there and there were children there, probably ten to 20,000 people at this point. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Philly. Where are we going to get bread that these may eat? Look at verse 6. And this he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. In case you didn't know, the Lord is sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. The Lord knew exactly what he intended to do. The Lord knew that he would feed the thousands from five loaves and a couple fish. But the Lord sought to involve Philip in the process. You ought to make note of that. God always seeks to involve his people in the work of his kingdom. God is always seeking to involve his people in the work of his kingdom. And so in wanting to develop faith in us, and wanting to develop us into disciples, and wanting to develop us into servants, He will always expose us to the needs that He sees, or put more succinctly or more correctly, that He has sovereignly placed around us. Listen to me now. God has sovereignly put in your life and in the lives of the people around you problems, difficulties, hardships, misunderstandings, Worries, fears, concerns, hurts, and needs. And you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are His answer. For those hurts, for those fears, for those worries, for those needs, for those messes, for those traumas. The disciples of Jesus Christ are always the vehicle, the delivery system of God's blessings. In the Sermon on the Mount, God looked around at the people. Jesus looked around and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, that they were demon-possessed and oppressed, that there were paralytics and epilytics and all these things, and they had various diseases, that they were hurt and downtrodden and oppressed by the Roman government and all these things. And so once again, Jesus called the disciples to himself and began to instruct them concerning the kingdom of God. And so on this day, he looks at these hungry thousands and he turns to Philip. And he says, Philip, what do you think we ought to do? All the while, the Lord knew exactly what he was intending to do. The Lord was testing Philip. Put in a different way, the Lord had set him up. 
Don't you know that God will set you up? You can be sure of it that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. He is going to set you up. How do you know when God has set you up and it's not just random circumstances? Because the situation is way over your head. It's too difficult. It's too much. It's scary. It's frightening. You don't want to do it. That's how you know it's the Lord. I was in Germany with that same pastor, Jack Hibbs, a few years ago. And we went there to do an outreach and we were planning a church in Stuttgart, Germany. And we were there doing street evangelism. And, and I have a great time doing one-on-one street evangelism. I was enjoying it. And it was around the Christmas season. And the Germans are huge when it comes to Christmas. You ought to see it sometime. It's a real party in Germany around Christmas. But we went into this big public square. And all these Germans, thousands of them, were gathered there for this Christmas celebration. And we had, taken a, we had taken a band with us, and we set the band up on these steps of like this courthouse type place. And the band began to play, a great band from Chino Hills. And as the band began to play, the Germans began to gather. Thousands of them around this makeshift stage, there they all were. And Jack Hibbs, what an absolute spiritual stud. He just rolls up on that stage and gets on the microphone and just begins to preach the gospel to these thousands of unknown Germans. He doesn't speak German. He begins to just preach the gospel and he just gives us an amazing message and there was this big clock in the square this giant atomic digital clock and it was counting down the minutes to Christmas day and he talked about how that was counting down to the birth of Jesus Christ and how 2,000 years later the whole world has reset their clocks to that day in history and he just gave the most amazing powerful bold awesome anointed evangelistic message there in the middle of Germany And I was just standing on the side of the stage with my mouth open, just going, wow, praise the Lord, that was awesome. And he gets finished, and he walks down off the stage, and he walks right up to me and looks me right in the eye and goes, two songs and you're up. Jack, no, man, I'm in Germany for the sausage and the food and stuff. I'm not here. No, Jack, what are you talking about me? You are. At that moment, I knew that God had set me up. It wasn't Jack Hibbs, it was Jesus Christ. He had set me up. And at that moment, I had a decision before me. I could have simply said, no. That's way, that's way out of my comfort zone. That's too much. I had never done anything like that at the time. No way. Or I could simply respond in faith. Okay. And that is the situation that Philip was faced with this day. Philip, there are thousands in front of you and they're in need. What do you think we ought to do, O wise one, Philip? He said this to test him. When God tests you in this way, it is to reveal what you are made of in and of yourself. It's to reveal the flesh. It's to show us. And Philip was revealed. Look in verse 7. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. What a sad answer. Philip said, oh boy, let's see, 5,000 men, maybe maybe 5,000 women, maybe another 10,000 kids, maybe 20,000 people. A day's wage is a denarii, 200 days wage. Oh, it's too much, Lord, there's not enough. Lord, there's not enough money, we can't do it. 
is the answer of an atheist. Totally void of faith. Totally concentrated on physical circumstances and completely ignoring the reality of the supernatural power of God. And I'm sad to say that so many Christians live their life in that place. Totally focused on temporal circumstances and ignoring the supernatural power, proven faithfulness of God. I'm sad to say that too many Christians live their life that way. Totally focused, driven by temporal circumstances and not being mindful of the power of God. And that was Philip. Philip said, Lord, we can't do it. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough resources. And quite frankly, uh, I'm going to see him face to face in heaven, so I don't want to be too bold, but Philip blew it. Philip failed. John MacArthur says, one of the supreme essentials of leadership is a sense of vision. But Philip was obsessed with mundane matters and therefore overwhelmed by the impossibility of the immediate problem. He knew too much arithmetic to be adventurous. The reality of the raw facts clouded his faith. He knew too much arithmetic to be adventurous. The reality of the raw facts clouded his faith. Let me ask you in all humility, as one brother to another, when was the last time you were adventurous in your faith for Jesus Christ? I mean, when was the last time you were stretched? When was the last time that you allowed yourself to be in a situation for God where you said, God, this is terrifying. This is too much. This is beyond me. God, this need is too great. Or that's too bold. Or I've never done that. Or Lord, like Moses, I can't speak. I can't lead. I can't do that. When was the last time, if you're a Christian now, I'm just talking to the Christians. When was the last time, Christian, that you were challenged to the very core of your being in serving Jesus Christ? If you can't remember the last time, then in all humility, it's been too long. It's been too long. One thing I do in my Christianity is keep myself in the place of stretching. I keep myself in a place where I've got to be desperate for God. I keep myself in over my head. It's not easy because God is always wanting us to be in over our heads. Because when we, when we are weak, He is strong. And weakness, his strength is made perfect. When we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. And so being in God's will, you are often, almost always, going to be in over your head in serving him. And being engaged in kingdom things. And so I like to keep myself in that place. And I look for opportunities in the kingdom of God that stretch me. Opportunities where I say, I know I can't meet that need in and of myself. I know that if I just look at circumstances, that terrifies me. If I just look at circumstances, we haven't got the money, we haven't got the resources, we haven't got the manpower, we haven't got the knowledge, we haven't got the guts, let's do it. That's where we ought to be as Christians. When was the last time you were adventurous in your faith? Jesus said in Matthew 17, verse 20, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing shall be impossible to you. If you have faith as a mustard seed, what do we know about a mustard seed? It's small. Mustard seed was very small. 
And that's part of the point. Jesus said, even with a little faith, you can do great things. But more importantly, a mustard seed is something that is alive. And it bears fruit. It grows and it blossoms and it bears fruit. I guess mustard, you know. (laughs) But what Jesus was saying was that even if your faith is small, your faith is to be alive. And I'm so sorry this morning, but James said that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You can tell me you have faith in God all day long, but I am going to be able to look at your life and see whether or not that's true. If you were taken to a court of law and accused of being a Christian, could they prove that to be true? Could they prove it? Faith without works is dead, James said. But faith that is alive is continually being stretched, being challenged, willing to dive in, willing to be desperate for God, willing to just have reckless abandon and say, God, I can't do it, but here is my step of faith. You do it. Just like when Peter stood on the edge of that boat and he had said, Jesus, if it's you really walking on the water, then bid me to come to you. And the Lord said, then come. I imagine Peter went, "Ah, shoot. (laughs) Ah. And as he stood there on the edge of the boat, we know that there was a great storm. We know that the boat was filling with water, very literally in the Greek. The boat was subjected to the waves, meaning the boat was on the verge of sinking. It was underneath the waves. And as he stood there with water in the boat and waves outside of the boat, and the waves would drop away from him and there'd be white caps and it was nighttime and it was dark, he had to take a step of faith. He didn't know for sure of when his feet hit the water if he would float or sink. The only thing he had was the word of God. All Abraham had when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees was the word of God. God just said, Abraham, leave your family, leave your relatives, leave your home, go to a place that you know nothing about that I haven't even told you about yet. Just get up and go. Peter, step out of the boat. Okay, Lord. Here it goes. Whoa! Wow, Lord, I'm standing on the water. Oh, James, check it out, dude. Oh, Thomas, look, Thomas, I'm walking on the water. Oh, and he's walking toward the Lord. And then it says that he began to notice the circumstances, that the circumstances were overwhelming, that they were scary, that the waves were big, that it was dark. And when he took note of the circumstances, he forgot the word of God and he began to sink. What a shame that is. Overwhelmed by circumstances, he began to sink. And as he began to sink, he said, Lord, help me. And the Lord just reached out and grabbed his hand and lifted him up. Took him back to the boat. Shortest prayer in all the Bible. Lord, save me, I'm sinking. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. Sometimes we could just be walking with the Lord walking in obedience, and have radical trouble in our life. God uses trials to develop in us perseverance and proven character and hope. You can be totally obedient to the Lord and have horrible things happen in your life. But other times, you've gotten too wrapped up in circumstances. You've gotten your eyes on the things of the world and your own ability and your own inadequacy instead of the things of God, His ability and His adequacy, and you're beginning to sink. Lord, save me. And the Lord reached down and he saved Peter that day. 
And as Philip saw the impossibilities from a human perspective, he was totally right. It was impossible from a human perspective, but he wasn't seeing the supernatural possibilities. And all those since the birth of the church who have gone down as history makers, that have impacted the world, have been men and women for Christ who saw not the impossibilities, they saw the possibilities in God. They didn't look at the world through natural eyes, they looked at the world through supernatural eyes. And Philip this day missed the opportunity. He missed seeing the reward of faith. He only saw the impossibility. And you might be saying today, Lord, I need faith. I'm scared. Stuff is hard. Circumstances are crazy. It's overwhelming. Lord, I need faith. I can give you a very simple answer to that today. Read your Bible. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Are you lacking faith? Are you afraid? Are you overwhelmed by circumstances? Read your Bible. God will reveal there his faithfulness and he will supernaturally implant in you faith. Do you need faith for a specific situation, a specific circumstance? Ask God for the gift of faith. It's a spiritual gift listed in the New Testament. You can come before God to say, before God today and say, God, I need a gift of faith. I need to believe beyond all belief. I need to believe beyond hope. I need to trust in you, though everything says it is impossible. God, give me the gift of faith. Those are things that you can do in your spirituality today. Contrast Andrew. Andrew, Andrew, whom we spoke of last week in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Andrew had a little bit of faith. Andrew came and said, Lord, this is what we have. Instead of saying, Lord, here's what we don't have, he said, Lord, this is what we have. That needs to be the attitude of the Christian. Not, Lord, I haven't got this, or I'm not able to do that, or thus and so and the other, but simply, Lord, here is all I have. It isn't much, but here it is. Because not much in the hands of a great God and Savior is a whole lot, right? He made us from dirt. We could say dust. It's funner to say dirt. We're made of dirt. Samson. Samson had in a battle that he was engaged in the jawbone of a donkey. That's not much. But with it, he slayed thousands. David had some little round stones and a sling against a big, huge, nine-foot-tall, crazy, uncircumcised Philistine. (laughs) But because of God, it was a whole lot. Andrew said, Lord, we have five little pieces of bread, and we have two little fish, and we got this little boy. What are you going to do? You know the rest of the story. Turn to John chapter 12 now. So we see the second vignette of Philip's life. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. So, they're going up to worship at a Jewish feast there in the temple region. 
and they were Greeks, meaning they were either just God-fearing Greeks or they were absolute proselytes to Judaism. Either way, they were going up to worship with God's people, the Jews. That's a great thing. Verse 21, These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now there is a dream scenario. You know, in your personal evangelism, you've kind of sometimes got to go to people and, hey man, do you know the Lord? Can I tell you about Jesus? Do you know God's plan of salvation? Do you know how God demonstrated his love? Hey man, let me tell you about the Lord. Seldom does someone come to you and go, hey, uh, can you tell me about the Lord? Those are the dream scenarios. Those are the great moments in life. I've had a few of them in my life. When someone just comes to you and says, I want to see Jesus. I want to know about this Jesus guy. What an opportunity to just go, oh, Philip could have said, let me just tell you, I've been walking with a guy for almost three years from now. Let me tell you the whole scene. Oh, Philip, what a great opportunity for you. Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew. What? They didn't say, we want to see Andrew. They said, we want to see Jesus. They came to Philip, probably because his name was Lover of Horses. They came to Philip, being Greeks, and Philip is a Greek name. Oh, Lover of Horses. No meaning there, no significance. I'm just playing. We want to see Jesus. And instead of just taking him to the Lord, he took him to Andrew. He took him to someone else. Now listen, this is a mistake that many Christians make today. There's someone in your life who is spiritually hungry, spiritually needy, needing to know the Lord. And you are the vehicle, the delivery system for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. But what we so often do is say, oh, well, then you ought to come to church. Or, oh, you ought to talk to Pastor G. Oh, Pastor G can preach the gospel to you. I'm going to take you to Pastor G. Or read this book, or I'm going to take you here or there to the other. And we often take them every place except for directly to Jesus Christ. Our job is to take people to Jesus, Christians. That is our calling, our anointing, our blessing, our privilege to take people to Jesus. Amen. Don't make the mistake of taking him somewhere else. Just take him to the Lord. You've got a purpose in your heart right now that when someone comes to you and says, I wish to say Jesus, that you will spill forth from your lips the gospel. Remember last week we learned the four R's? Very simple. We learned how to present the gospel with those four R's and you could do it in just a minute. Here's what I used to do when I first learned that. I used to drive around in my car and preach them to myself. Whenever I had to drive, I would out loud, verbally, preach the gospel. From every direction I could think, I would preach the gospel. So that my heart and my mind and my lips got used to giving the gospel. Because I purposed in my heart. If someone comes to me and they want to know about Jesus, by golly, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm not going to tell them about some pastor. I'm not going to tell them about some church. I am going to tell them about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I practice. Why? Because when someone would ask me, I'd get nervous and afraid and I'd forget the gospel and my lip would quiver and I'd spaz out. And so like anything else, I practice. And I'll tell you what, in all humility, I get good at giving the gospel. I could give it at an instant. You give me half of a door that's open and blam, I'm going to deliver that thing. 
And then I got to practicing apologetics. In other words, what if someone came to me and said, well, how can you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Or how can you believe the New Testament is true? Or hasn't it been changed? Or how can you say Jesus is the only way? I'd be driving in my car and I'd preach the gospel and then I'd say to myself, well, how can you possibly say that Jesus is the only way? Isn't that a little bit arrogant? Oh no, man, let me tell you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Buddha, he didn't die for your sins and rise from the dead. Muhammad didn't die for your sins and rise from the dead. They didn't even offer to deal with your sins. Only Jesus Christ offered to deal with your sins, died on the cross for them, and then rose from the dead, thereby giving validity to the fact that he said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me he proved that he was the only way and he said he was the only way therefore Buddha and Muhammad were liars but Jesus Christ be true and I preach it to myself and then Pastor G and I we used to go to the YMCA and play racquetball and work out together as you can tell he's continued and I gave up working out But we would go there and we'd work out and afterwards we'd sit in the sauna, the little steam room thing. And uh, I'm kind of letting out a secret here, but here's what we do. We're sitting in the steam room and when someone else would come in, Gerald would begin to preach the gospel to me or me to him. And we'd pretend like we didn't know each other. And I'd act kind of nervous. You know, those big Mexican ball guys talking to me. I'd be kind of... Kind of pull my towel up around. And so he would share with me the good news about Jesus Christ, and then I would give him some fake question. Oh, man, how can you Christians say Jesus is the only way? And then he'd answer me. And I'd go, oh, wow, never thought of that. But hasn't the Bible been changed a whole bunch of times? And he would answer me. I'd go, wow, man, you've really given me some stuff to think about. And so we would practice the gospel. And I'll tell you what, if someone comes up to Pastor G and says, I want to see Jesus, they're going to see Jesus. And so it ought to be for you. If somebody comes, whether they say it or not, if you just see a need in their life for the Lord, you, Christian, let me burden you now rightly. You must be able to vocalize the gospel clearly, succinctly, in its fullness, every single Christian must be able to do so. Philip took him to Andrew. And Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. Andrew held Philip's little hand and they finally took him to the Lord. Philip felt again. Turn to John chapter 14 now. John chapter 14, our last little bit on Philip. This is taking place, we're going to read from verse 1 in a moment, in the upper room during the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was crucified, in the upper room. By the way, when we go to Israel as a church, August 17th is our date, mark your calendars, till about the 29th. When we go to Israel on August 17th as a church, we will go to the upper room. Pretty cool, huh? In the upper room on this night, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 1, 
Let not your heart be troubled, speaking to his disciples. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the first mention in the New Testament of the rapture of the church. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you. And did he go? And did he go literally? He said, I will return to receive you unto myself. And so just as he went, as he said, and he went literally, he will return, as he said, and literally. Verse 4. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? I doubt all that you're saying right now. I added that. Verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Listen now. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus makes here an explicit claim to his deity. No mincing of words cannot be misunderstood in the clearest language possible. Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. From now on, you know Him, speaking of the Father, and have seen Him. We're told in the book of Colossians chapter 1 about verse 13 that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And so He's telling the disciples... If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Verse 8. Here's our boy. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Wait a minute. What? Philip, did you read verse 7? Verse 7. One more time, Philip. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. (laughs) Wait a minute, Philip. Did you read verse 7? You know him and have seen him. Yeah, 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 Lord. But show us the Father and then it's enough. Philip. What an insult to Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's just a lack of faith. It was just a lack of trusting in what he said. It was just an unbelief. In the Gospels, there is only one thing that ever caused Jesus to marvel. What was it? Faith. It is the only time that Jesus marveled was when he saw great faith. And the time when Jesus was greatly upset was when he saw a lack of faith. What an insult it is not to believe God as Christians. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And yet when stuff happens in our lives, we just freak out and lose it and spaz. I understand that. I do the same thing. But if we believe God, that he works all things together for good, that he holds us in his hand, as Pastor G said earlier, in his righteous right hand, that he is in control, that he in his very nature is good, that he loves you, that he causes all things to work together for good. But Lord, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. I don't see how it's all going to work out. That's why he gave us Proverbs chapter 3, the fifth verse. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You don't have understanding? That's good. God told you not to lean on it anyway. 
but acknowledge Him in all your ways. Are you lacking faith today? You need to read your Bible and pray every day. And so Jesus said, I am the Father. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. (laughs) Philip had been with Jesus for three years. He had heard the testimony of John the Baptist. He had witnessed untold miracles. John 21, 25 says, And there were many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that were written. He had seen people healed. He had seen people raised from the dead. He had seen the Lord's power over demons. He had seen them walk on water. He had spent three years in intimacy with Him. If He had known Jesus, He would have known the Father. If He had known Jesus, He would have known the Father and the Father's faithfulness. But He missed it though He walked with the Lord. Disciples, you are called primarily to be with Jesus. The more time you spend with Him, the more you are convinced of His absolute ability to take care of you. His absolute ability to deliver on every single promise He has ever made. Verse 9, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father, Philip? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Philip had been gazing into the face of God for three years. But because of his earthbound thinking, his materialistic viewpoint, his skepticism, and his lack of adventurous faith. He missed out on the claim of deity that Jesus made the night before his crucifixion. It kept him blind. If the story ended here, Philip was kind of a bummer. Three times in the Gospels he's mentioned, apart from just the list, three times he said or did something just really dumb. Can anybody here relate to Philip? But the story doesn't end there. Jesus rose from the dead. And he said, I'm ascending unto heaven that I may send unto you the helper who is from the Father, the Holy Spirit. He said to Philip and the others, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was sent and came upon the church. And Philip with the others was empowered that day. And history tells us that Philip was greatly used by the Lord that he was mighty in the hands of God. And even though he was the one of little faith, Jesus sought him out personally because in weakness, God's strength is perfected. Amen? God, we thank you that things do not depend upon us, but they depend upon you. We thank you that all of us, though we are weak in faith, have been found by you, called by you, chosen by you. I pray if there's anyone in here who does not have saving faith in you this morning, they have not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, they haven't repented of their sins and said, God, I have been living wrong and I know that you are right, that right now they would simply say, Jesus, save me. And that you would save them. 
And then you would do for all of us what you did for Philip. Gently and lovingly disciple us through our shortcomings. Care for us as children who are but dirt. And then use us by your spirit indwelling us, by your gifts in us, for your glory, God. Use us.